Thank you so much, Zobia, for this very generous introduction. And thank you also for this great opportunity and privilege. Uh, I'm delighted to be back in Oxford, though even if so virtually after 26 years. Um, and and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to speak to the uh, South Asia Intellectual History Seminar. Um, what I'm going to do today is um, uh, uh, to discuss a text uh, 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 for a reason. Uh, the reason is that these days um, there is much talk in South Asia, as well as across the world, about illiberal democracies, about the loss of certain freedoms. Um, and yet, uh, in the Indian context, um, um, before the 19th century, the question of freedom was broadly understood in two ways. Uh, one was the idea of moksha, the ultimate freedom from the cycles of life and death, kind of deathless state, a state that transcends life and death, that constitutes the, the visible world. And the second was Jivan Mukti, uh, uh, Jeevan Mukta was someone who possessed the knowledge that liberates a person while he is still alive. And if one doesn't consider the banalities of Neo-Advaita of the 19th century, uh, these were highly uh, 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 complex terms which the interpretations of which differed from uh, philosophical persuasion to philosophical persuasion. Uh, there was not one uniform view on either of these terms. From the 19th century, of course, uh, the question of freedom gets, uh, gets entangled in uh, the, the, the discourse of nationalism. And then from uh, that time onwards, uh, there is this endless discussion about freedom from and freedom to. So um, perhaps even the most sustained uh, uh, consideration on the question of freedom from and freedom to, uh, namely Chaturvedi Badrinath's uh, monumental work on Mahabharata. Uh, he devotes an entire chapter to the question of freedom from and to. Um, my, my, my agenda this, uh, uh, this afternoon for you and night for me is uh, whether we can broaden and deepen our understanding of the question of freedom. And I'll, I'll make an attempt to do just that by reading a relatively obscure text. Um, the text is called The Ocean of Mirth, Hasyarnava. Um, as with Indian texts, uh, early medieval, medieval texts, the date of composition of ancient and medieval Indian texts is subject to intense speculation and conjecture. Um, uh, these are texts which are collated and interpolated for a long period of time. So it's safe to place it between uh, the 13th and the 17th centuries. Um, there is internal evidence of parts of it belonging to an earlier period, other parts belonging to another period. 
There is also evidence uh, from other texts which mention this text that it was performed in such and such king's court in uh, such and such time. So uh, overall, it's safe to say that the text as we know it today was uh, collated and 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 uh, uh, put together between the 14th and the 17th centuries. Um, in its currently available version, it is attributed to one Jagdish Prabhattacharya. So there is little guarantee that he was the single author of the text. Um, uh, this would have been subject to innumerable interpolations. Um, the interesting bit here is uh, the question of uh, its title itself, Hasyarnava. Uh, now, Hasya uh, is often uh, translated um, you know, clumsily as laughter, uh, but there is more to Hasya than laughter. Uh, it's closer to mirth than, than it's to laughter. So it has it has it has an overall connotation which which broadens uh, its meaning, the ocean of mirth. Um, what is this text about? Uh, it's a text that has chaos at its heart. Um, it embraces, acknowledges disorder. Its pages are full of an unabashed celebration of disorder. Behind all the satirical pronouncements. There is a, there's a fond, unconcealed wish to leave things in their messy and untended state. Um, there are hints about what gifts, restoration of order might offer, uh, bounties that order might offer uh, when effectively enforced. Uh, what are the things it might predictably bring? Uh, but these gifts of order, sometimes real, sometimes imagined, uh, we shall discover carry with them the real possibility of violence, cruelty, death, and above all, a curtailment, even a smothering of freedom. Now, among all the uh, known political satires in many languages in India, it's the only one that I know which does not seek a return to the golden age or to the rule of an iconic ideal king. So most political satires um, begin with there being an ideal, a slide, a perversion, a departure from the ideal. Um, and then there is always a restoration. Um, uh, 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 it, it, uh, there is always the announcement of a wise sage or a learned Brahmin or an incarnation coming and reinstating order. This text is unusual in that it does not announce the arrival of a wise sage or a learned Brahmin to reinstate the ideal order. Uh, there's no promise of a savior or an incarnation either. It begins and ends without a final resolution of any kind, except celebrating chaos and disorder. Now, before I go on to the text, uh, the short introduction uh, to the cast of characters in order of appearance. 
there is the principal male actor and narrator, there is the principal female actor and narrator, then there is the king. He is called King Anaya Sindhu, which translates as King Ocean of Disorder. So even the king uh, has disorder uh, as part of his name. There is somebody called Kumati Varma, who is his main minister, whose name translates as protector of folly. There is a very central character, which alas, because of the nature of the presentation today, I'm not uh, uh, going to discuss um, uh, her role too much. She is the most fascinating character in the, the whole satire, uh, a co courtesan uh, and a procuress called Bandhura, uh, whose name translates uh, as inclined vulva. There is her daughter, Mrigankalekha, um, a streak of the young moon's crescent. So that's what her name translates as. Uh, that is Vishwabhanda, the counselor chaplain to the king, uh, whose name translates as world buffoon. Kalhankura, the counselor chaplain's assistant, uh, uh, whose name means tumor of strife. There is Vyadhi Sindhu, a doctor, uh, whose name translates as Ocean of Diseases. There is, there is the doctor's father, Aturantaka, uh, whose uh, name translates as Death of the Afflicted. The, there is a barber called Ratnaka Lol, Joy in Blood. There is Mithyarnava, Brahmin, uh, whose name means Ocean of Deceit. Rana Jambuka, the commander-in-chief, is jackal of war. There is Mahayatrika, a priest and astrologer, predictor of the great beyond. There is Madananda Mishra, a, another priest, uh, whose name means blind with passion. Uh, there is a person called Kulaka, uh, who's his assistant, Madhananda Mishra's assistant, whose uh, name translates as wild cock. Uh, and there is Mahanindaka, the priest as critic, or the mighty censurer. Now, the theme in the themes in the political satire, before I go on to one section of the satire, are order, disorder, chaos, caste, sexuality. And if you do a cursory first reading, everything goes downhill. There is little attempt to contain this tide of degeneration and decadence. As I said, I'll concentrate on only one dimension, which is the figure of the king, along with the questions of order, disorder, and freedom. Now the king embodies chaos. All disorder, incompetence, weakness, decadence, sin, impropriety, indifference, and distortion of reality emanates from the king. That sounds so contemporary. Uh, but this is what the king was even then. 
these elements inhere in almost all the other characters too. They're all an extension of the king. They defy the sacred canon, caste, and dietary taboos, rituals, religious service, and even the aim to reach heaven. They're not even bothered about moksha. In the prologue, the narrator warns about the king's arrival, uh, which is seen as a bad omen. He is coming to ascertain the welfare as well as the misfortunes of his state and his subjects. But even before uh, uh, he arrives, we are told that, number one, law has been driven out of the kingdom to a far off place, and so have righteous men and women. Number two, cheats, frauds, and crafty people work, work relentlessly to defraud people. Number three, all men force themselves on the wives of other men to gratify their lust. As the narrative progresses, the portrait of the king will turn increasingly unflattering. So the courtesan procurus calls him the universal monarch among the rogues, uh, the protector of folly, the minister, calls him the greatest sinner in the world. People speak of him openly and of his meanness and his pitiable condition. The king, we will discover, is not excessively violent or cruel. Despite the scare created in the prologue about his impending arrival, he remains a pathetic, indifferent and dissolute figure, open to repeated insults. Initially, when the servant spy tells him of the state of the kingdom, he promises to institute punishments for those behaving badly, but that's the last we hear of it. Subsequently, even though cases are brought before him, he rarely intervenes. All he wants to do is to embrace a prostitute and make love to her. His life is a chronicle of misfortune, stupidity, debts, sin, ailments, fears, and enemies. So the king arrives, and from the prologue, we know that the law and the righteous have fled. We have a sense of the state of the kingdom. After he arrives, he asks the servant spy to ascertain the state of the kingdom. He calls the servant spy the expounder of false perceptions. So the king already knows that the servant spy is the expounder of false perceptions. The servant spy returns after ascertaining the state of the kingdom. He speaks with great concern about all the social classes and castes actually adhering to their designated roles. Attests to morals and ethics being in place. Gives even the example of women following customary codes of ethics down to the correct way of wearing jewelry. The expounder of false perceptions calls the state of affairs confusing and nonsensical. 
He tells the king that his kingdom and his subjects exhibit extreme transgression of rules. Now, this exchange between the king and the servant spy reveals a very complex equation. Even before the servant spy presents his report, the king knows that he was prone to presenting false perceptions. On hearing his account, the king, in ordinary circumstances, ought to have realized that the opposite of what he was conveying is true. True to his reputation, the servant spy presents a distorted and untruthful picture of reality. The king believes this untrue and distorted picture to be true. The king then is a believer in false perceptions. Or, there lies a question, is it an instance of a kind of order that disorder can represent. Let us take another example. A barber called Joy in Blood, Raktakallol, enters the makeshift court at the house of the courtesan and presents him a mirror, presents the king a mirror. The king refuses even to hold the mirror and promptly gives it to the courtesan, to the procurers. She suffers from cataract and has no use of it. She in turn gives it to the world buffoon. In other words, the king has no interest in reality. He knows that the mirror will reflect himself in his many roles and guises. He will see an image that extends to everything and permeates everything. Again, Recall that when the servant spy presents his version of reality, the king does not see it as a distortion. The normative ideal is presented to him as a collapse of order and of legal procedure. He refuses to acknowledge the ideal, affirms that elements of the ideal as presented to him were indeed transgressions and promises punishment. Now, here, one needs to digress a little. What is the, what is, what is the Indic ideal king? What is the Indic conception of the normative order? From the pre-classical and classical period, society was hierarchically organized around social castes and classes. Within that, the ideal is presented as the relationship between the Kshatriya warrior and the Brahmin priest. In reality, there was often a constant quest for power and preeminence between the two. It is a scene of collaboration, fear, loathing, distrust, and serving mutual interests. The same tradition also speaks in hyperbolic terms of the king's supremacy, autonomy, and power. At the same time, the king lacked the space to maneuver and act as he may wish. 
the king was checked, theoretically at least, by the hierarchical superiority of the Brahmin priest. In fact, all other social classes had to abide by the instructions of the Brahmins. The Brahmins proclaimed the law, dharma, sacred law, and all other forms of law, and the king had to govern accordingly. In the ideal order, one important element was the ability of the king to subdue his senses. But there was distrust about the king's ability to do so on his own. So the need for a Brahmin counselor chaplain to keep him in check. And though the king counselor chaplain relationship is subject to textual contradictions and historical periodization, they are unambiguously aligned in the quest of one single element. And that's crucial for us. And that single element is the desire and pursuit of order. What did order comprise of? What, what, did, what, what constituted order? Order was constituted by the integrity of the four social classes and castes, the four stages of life, celibate student, householder, forest dweller, and renunciate, that all classes ought to adhere to their prescribed sacred law and their mandated duties, that all security and protection is to be sought and given within the ambit of the four classes, and any violation must be accorded the correct form of punishment. So the king's function was seen as a sacred duty, a dharma. It's a way of behaving, a right way in which to behave, and the way in which one should behave. In the evolution of the notion of the ideal king, all royal functions and duties were subsumed under a category called Raja Dharma or the duties of the king. This was an omnibus notion. It circumscribes all the duties of the king. Apprehensive that the world would be a fearful chaos if the king and his functions were to derail, there is excessive uh, emphasis on this question of order and Rajadharma ensuring this order. One prerogative granted to the king within the idea of duties of the king, Rajadharma, was the idea of punishment or danda. The word also means a rod or a mace or a scepter. It is an institution created to look after the king's interests, to enable him to establish order and enforce norms. Some of the most striking lines uh, in the chapter titled The Law for the King uh, in Manav Dharma Shastra of Manu, popularly known as Manusmriti, are reserved for describing Danda. Danda is the son of the Lord. I quote, 
it is fear of him that makes all beings both the mobile and the immobile exceed to being used and not deviate from the law proper to them punishment is the king he is the male he is the leader he is the ruler and tradition tells us he stands as the surety for the law with respect to the four orders of life punishment disciplines all the subjects punishment alone protects them and punishment watches over them as they sleep punishment is the law the wise declared end quote the king then is the one who administers punishment of course punishment then must be meted out judiciously carefully correctly failure to do so rebounds on the king by creating total havoc despite these disclaimers regarding the unwise use of punishment the obsessive quest to establish the sacred law as duty and prevent deviations these texts forge an extraordinary relationship between the ideal king and punishment the king is often called dandadhara meaning both the carrier of the scepter and the upholder of punishment there are texts that often use the word king and punishment synonymously and interchangeably there is then a sense of violence inherent in following the royal duties and the exercise of dispensing punishment another authoritative text extends the argument and i quote the rod punishes all subjects the rod protects them when everything is asleep the rod is awake the learned say that the rod is dharma o lord of men the rod protects both dharma and arth the rod protects karma in this world that has come about everything is based on the rod to ensure that there was no confusion among mortals to protect riches and to establish boundaries in this world danda was thought of when danda strides around dark and red eyed there is exaltation and subjects are not confused and quote if you see the the first few verses of this quote the operative words are fear and frightened soon these are substituted effortlessly with arguments that support endorse and justify killing god's kill time kills death kills certain gods are worshiped because they have killed everyone alive in this world acts violently the stronger live off the weaker only the stupid control their anger and delight and retire to the forest if danda did not exist the world would be destroyed the rod controls the four social categories castes preserves boundaries legitimizes property maintains the difference between the virtuous and the wicked and ensures the observance of the four stages of life righteous violence 
represented by Danda, sustains Dharma, which in turn sustains the world. Moreover, Dharma, Artha, Kama exist under the rod and its protection, and as does everything else in the world. So, sacred law, Dharma, then cannot exist and prosper in disorder. In the words of the author of one of the authoritative law books, disorder leaves everything topsy-turvy. If disorder is seen as an imbalance among social classes, with limits being breached and insecurity growing among subjects, punishment has to step in and restore order. In other words, in a world falling apart, Restoring order is possible only by violence integral to the duties of the king and punishment, or what I call the Rajadharma Dandaniti nexus. It's a vicious cycle. The king desires order, and in ensuring that he ensuring that this that he doesn't exceed the proper limits of sacred law or dharma, uh, has to contain disorder through violence and by killing. This leaves him weak, contaminated with evil, vulnerable, confused, flawed, unbalanced, crippled, frustrated. Nothing could be more cruel than the dharma, law, duty, order nexus. As a modern commentator correctly says, articulates it beautifully, punishment stands at the intersection of the political and legal. The normalization in a literal sense of domination, where coercive violence becomes just punishment. Now let's come back to Ocean of Mirth after this Slightly longish digression. The question that we need to ask is, is disinterest on part of King Anaya Sindhu, King Ocean of Disorder, in the compelling myth of the iconic king and in the sacred law as duty and punishment, his disinterest in these. Is that really such a fatal flaw? Now, it's no surprise the king in the political satire I have presented is called Ocean of Disorder. Neither is it unusual that almost all other characters in the play are an extension of the disorder that the king so vividly personifies. This is disorder at its best. Here, hierarchies weaken or collapse, insecurity thrives, the power that the powerful have, they use it to torment the weak, the weak retaliate when given a chance, boundaries disappear, Wealth gets freed from 
the sacred laws framework, and so does erotic love. Well-worn pieties dissolve. Derisive laughter resounds. Mediocrity triumphs, but also creativity finds release. Fidelity to customs and traditions dissipates. Rituals become meaningless. Judgments flounder. It is this breach in the sacred laws, dharma fortress, that constitutes an instance of freedom. Recall again that the dark and red-eyed punishment protects well-being and erotic love, artha and karma. Freedom then is affluence and love freed from the stranglehold of sacred law. The commonly used word for wealth, opulence, money, utility and advantage is artha, but it also means aim, purpose, cause, motive, reason, sense. Karma too is not erotic love and pleasure alone, but also desire, longing, love, affection. Disorder enables earth and karma to run berserk. Freedom then in the small, perhaps even short-lived instance is the space that is created between order and chaos. Thank you.